Well, a very warm welcome to you all. It's a great pleasure to be back here uh, this morning. The drive up the A9 was beautiful and the weather just got better. So it's a good sign. Let us begin. There's a, the, the call to worship is Isaiah 61. And what we'll be doing today is we'll be looking back and forth between promises or pictures that we have in Isaiah and fulfillment that we find in the gospel. But let me just read the first few words of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Let us worship God. We're going to begin by singing to his praise from Psalm number 100. It's the first version. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Let's stand together and join our voices in praise.
as we've joined our voices in praise, let's unite our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good, gracious, and kind. And we thank you that you issue this open invitation to the dwellers of the earth, to the residents of this world to come, to come into your presence, to come with songs of praise, to come with thanksgiving, to come acknowledging that you are God and that you are good. And it's our prayer today that as we worship you, the living God, that we would know that you are present, that you are powerful, that you are with us, and that you are for us. And we pray, Lord, that this uh, time of worship where we hear your word, where we speak to you in prayer, that there would be a real and meaningful dialogue, that you, the living God, would speak, that we would hear, that we would respond with faith and with hope and with love, that we would repent and turn to you for the forgiveness of sins that is promised to us in the gospel. We thank you that your word is powerful, and that as your word goes forth, you accomplish your work. And we thank you that you do all things well. So we pray your blessing upon the youngest to the oldest here today, and we pray that you would accompany all that is done in your name with your presence and with your power and with your blessing, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, young people, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you something that happened to me, and I'm going to ask you, what do you think I did next? Very simple. So I was at home in America. I know I'm from Edinburgh, but I do come from the United States. And I was in America, and I was doing DIY. And maybe some of the older folks here might say, I didn't think he was good at DIY, and maybe it'll come out in the story in just a moment. But you see, I was removing some old planks of wood, and I was putting down new planks of wood. So far, so good. But one morning, I slipped, and I fell. Now, it's a little bit embarrassing. I slipped my foot when it came out front under me, and I fell on, it was a dock. I fell on the dock, and I fell on my rear end. The only problem was that I fell on a board that had a nail sticking up. Now this is the nail. Three and a half inches. It's galvanized steel. And if you're wondering, would this nail go through human flesh? The answer is yes. So I sat on this nail, and it was about that far out of the plank. So that's what happened. What do you think I did next? Do you think I went to the barbers? I needed a haircut. Uh, do you think I went to the post office? I actually had to post a few letters that day. If this amount of a nail went, well, you, you can picture it. If it went into your, your, your backside, what do you think would happen next? Any guesses? I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe Scottish people are a bit tougher than American people. But um, guess where I went? It's just too much, isn't it? I know. Well, any guesses? Older people, older young people, younger old people. I went to the 
hospital. I went to what we call it a critical care facility. And I went to a critical care facility and the nice lady at reception said, how can I help you? And I said, I sat on that nail. And she said, oh, that looks sore. And she said, just have a seat. We'll come down. Well, I didn't really want to have a seat. But anyway, so I went to the doctor and I met with one of the doctors there. I met with a nurse. I met with a doctor. And not one of them said, why are you here wasting our time? All I had to do was show the nail and said, I just sat on that. And it went right into, well, you get the idea. And it reminded me, as painful as that incident was, well, the, the doctor, you'll be happy to know, he did two things. He gave me a tetanus injection in this arm, and he sent me away with a, a lot of antibiotic tablets. Because you might guess that after being 30 years in a dock, this, this nail was not as, as clean as you would like it to be. So they had to make sure that I was going to be healthy and safe. But I was thinking as I was sitting there waiting for the doctor to treat me that I need to do something to make something out of this accident. So I thought to myself, what do I learn or what am I reminded of in the Bible? There's a verse in Luke chapter 5, and this is Jesus speaking. Jesus answered and said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You see, Jesus said, look, if you're sick you go to the doctor. Now, if I went to the doctor, if I went to the critical care facility and I said, just want to let you know, I'm having a great day. I feel terrific. They would have said, I'm glad to hear that, sir, but we're here for sick people. But when I did come in and I said, I sat on a sharp nail and it went a couple inches into my rear end, they said, you are exactly in the right place. We'll, take, we'll look after you well. Jesus said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sick people go to the hospital. People who sin, who get it wrong, these are exactly the kind of people that Jesus has come to help. Jesus has not come to make good people better. Jesus has come to make sinners righteous or good. And that's maybe one lesson that I learned from this three and a half inch nail. I would not want anyone to duplicate what I did. But if you remember that if you're sick, you need a doctor. And if you sin, you need a savior. And that savior is called Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We're now going to sing again. We're going to sing from Psalm 130. Psalm 130, and this is from the uh, traditional version. Lord, from the depths I cry to you. Lord, from the depths, Lord, from the depths to thee I cried. My voice, Lord, do thou hear. Unto my supplications voice give an attentive ear. Let's stand together to sing to God's praise.
turn to read now in God's Word in the Old Testament. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah is a very big book, 66 chapters. It kind of splits into three parts. The first 35 chapters tend to sound a solemn note of warning. You know, of warning that sin will have consequences and that the people of God are in danger of losing all that they thought they once had and all that they thought was once secure. There's a few chapters, 36 to 39, which is kind of history, kind of a little sandwiched in between. And then 40 to 46 tends to sound a positive note of hope, of optimism for the future. But at the very end of that first section is Isaiah chapter 35, which is one of the brightest chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. And it shines even more brightly because of the solemn material that comes before it. And we'll see the way in which Isaiah 35 and the ministry of Jesus connect powerfully in Mark's gospel. So Isaiah chapter 35, let me read to us those ten verses. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. And may God add his own blessing to that reading of his word. Let's now join again our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the young people now in their Sunday school classes. We pray for their teachers. And we pray that they would be learning more about you, learning more about your word, learning more about your son, learning more about your gospel. And what we pray for the young people, we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would learn more about you and more about us. Because as we learn more about you and more about us, we recognize how much we need help. That we need one who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need one who can fix what we have broken. One who can restore what we have lost. One who can provide what we need and desperately need. 
So we pray, Lord, that in our time together, that the Holy Spirit himself would open our eyes that we could see, that the Spirit himself would enliven our hearts that we can receive and, come and respond to all uh, that we are taught, and that our lives would in be indeed consecrated or dedicated, devoted, to therefore to doing that which is good and pleasing in your sight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this community here in North Keswick, Charleston. We thank you for the surrounding areas where folks will come from. And we thank you for this growing population here in the greater Inverness area. That more and more people are living here, working here, going to school here, or studying here. And we pray that this church and others would be a welcoming place where the settled residents of the community would feel at home and where new people might be welcomed, whether they come from different parts of Scotland or different parts of the world. We thank you that there is a welcome mat that is out in the gospel and that men and women, young and old, from all different backgrounds, that there is an open invitation to Jesus to come to him, to come with weariness, to come with burdens, to come with questions or doubts or anxieties or uncertainties. We thank you that we can come as we are, because quite honestly, we cannot come any other way. We cannot come as the strong. We cannot come as the wise. We cannot come as those whose lives are sorted. But we come as the weak, and we come as the foolish, and we come as those who aren't sorted. But we come to the one who can fix, restore, and renew. And we thank you for that vision, that picture that you painted to the prophet Isaiah of a restoration, of a redemption, of a ransom price being paid, and the transformation of nature itself, desolate places becoming places of abundance, feeble and weak people becoming strong, blind people seeing, mute people speaking, and the transformation that takes place. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that we might experience something of your presence and power today, that you would speak, that we would listen, that you would act, and act powerfully, because, Lord, we need your comfort, grace, and wisdom. We pray for this congregation. We pray for all who are associated with it. We pray for any who might be away this Lord's Day, that wherever they might be, that you would be with them. We pray for those who mourn, and I do pray for Ian and for the loss that he's experienced and the recent funeral. We pray, Lord, that you would comfort those who grieve. And we pray that you would provide that oil of gladness, because so often we find ourselves in the midst of ashes, in the midst of mourning, in the midst of sadness and sorrow. So, Lord, bless us, we pray. Do us good, and we ask, Lord, that you might exceed our asking, and that you might exceed even our imagining, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, because of who Jesus is, and because of who the Holy Spirit is, that we come to you in that name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's sing again, this time from the first half of our psalm books. We'll sing from Psalm 147. This is from the Sing Psalms portion. Let me just turn it up here. Psalm 147, and we'll sing from the beginning down to uh, verse uh, 7. 
Oh, praise the Lord, how good it is to sing Him songs of praise. How pleasant to give thanks to Him for all His gracious ways. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, and He it is alone who reaches out to Israel to bring the, ca- the exiles home. That's 147. Let's stand to sing to God's praise. turn back to Isaiah 35 in a moment, but if you turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7, and we're going to read at the very end of Mark 7 from verse 31, we're going to read of an encounter between an ordinary person and an extraordinary Savior. Now, I don't know if you think of yourself as ordinary. Uh, The great American evangelist called D.L. Moody was once asked the question, does God use ordinary people? To which he replied, of course he does. After all, there are very few extraordinary people. Or Abraham Lincoln, a kind of contemporary of Moody, put it this way. He said, God must love the common man because he made so many of them. So you and I are ordinary people. 
and we have ordinary cares and concerns, and we are going through this world, and each one of us is carrying some sort of burden, dealing with some sort of trial or trouble. I can tell you mine, you can tell me yours, but that's part of the human condition. And I want us to look at this scene, because this scene at the end of Mark 7 is unique. And whenever you have a unique event captured in the Gospels, you should ask yourself, why is it that Mark, and Mark only, captures this man, this healing, and what could we learn from this occasion? So remember, ordinary person with the burdens and trials and troubles of this life, but this encounter was extraordinary. Verse 31 of Mark chapter 7. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into, the, into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He has done all things well. You see, Jesus encounters ordinary people with the ordinary burdens and difficulties that this life brings. And he transforms people's lives so that it can be said then and now that he does all things well. At the very beginning of the gospel, Mark put it this way. He said, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. I think it's quite significant that at the very beginning of the gospel, Mark does two things. Mark tells us his subject. He identifies who he is writing about. And then he quickly tells us that the one he writes about was written about of old by Isaiah the prophet. So not far from Mark's mind is the background of this great book of prophecy in the Old Testament. And time and again we see New Testament fulfillments of Isaiah's predictions or prophecies. If you're interested in things like this, there are the, the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament is the book from which we sing, the book of Psalms. Not surprising, there's 150 of them, so the most quoted Old Testament book is the Psalms in the New. The second most quoted book is Isaiah the prophet. And we see these quotations, these predictions, and these promises quoted again and again. And if you think, I mean, it's a long time period, 
but about 800 years, 700-ish years between the time of Isaiah and the time of Jesus. So promises long ago made, promises now fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. And as you go through these opening eight chapters, time and again, Jesus is establishing his credentials, his identity. Now, in addition to my trip to the hospital, I had to take a trip to the DMV. Now, the DMV you might, is the DVLA, the Division of Motor Vehicles. And I needed to renew my driver's license. I've got two. I've got one here. I've got one there. So I go to the DVLA, and I go there, and I say, my name is Robert Aykroyd. Here's my old license. I want to renew it. And I thought that would be pretty straightforward. But then I had to prove that I was Robert Aykroyd. That not just the license that I had that had expired, but I needed my passport, I needed different forms of identification. And you know, sometimes it's actually quite difficult to prove who you are. To say, well, that, that's me, that's my picture. Uh, you know, that, that's my date of birth, that's my address, that's, you know, I've got brown eyes and, you know. But we, sometimes we do need to establish our identity. Jesus establishes his identity very clearly between what he says and what he does, between how he lives and eventually how he dies. He has authority. He has power. He has authority to teach. He has authority over illness, over sickness or disability, and that this is one of those scenes in Mark 7 where he demonstrates that he can heal the sick, that he can restore hearing to the deaf, he can restore speech to those whose, whose ability to communicate is limited, he can make the lame walk, he can make the blind see. He has authority over, the, over nature, the, the storms of the sea, or he walks on water. He has authority over death itself. He can raise people from the dead, the dead girl and the sick woman, you know, in Mark chapter 5. And he can meet and exceed human needs. And that's why we have a feeding miracle in Mark 6 and another feeding miracle in Mark 8. And it's quite remarkable Sorry, it's not a pun, but it's quite remarkable that Jesus tends to call very unusual people to himself. That was true 2,000 years ago, and I think that's true today. I just told as a visiting preacher, I've told you that you're ordinary, and now I've told you that you're unusual. But I think we are ordinary and unusual. We are all unusual in one way or another. And the followers of Jesus then and the followers of Jesus now are kind of unusual. Some fishermen, I'm sure there's fishermen in this building, tax collectors, there might be some who work for the Inland Revenue. There are those who are physically disabled. There are those who are struggling with one thing or another. And you see, there's people from different backgrounds. I'm from a different country, and there's some folks here who are from different backgrounds and different nationalities. So if you think that there is one pattern that you must be to be a follower of Jesus, the Bible never says that. The Bible never describes the typical follower of Jesus physically or what they might look like or what they might act like because there is no pattern. 
But Jesus gathers an unusual following of unusual people because of what he says, because of what he does, and because of the way in which he does all things well. What we have at the, in this section, we have at the end of Mark chapter 7 and near the end of Mark chapter 8, we have two unique miracles. We have the healing of the deaf mute man, Mark 7. Then you re- remember you have the blind man of Bethsaida in Mark 8. And that's a unique miracle. If you remember, Jesus heals that man in two stages. First stage, he's able to see people, but they kind of look like trees walking around. He has vague sight. He was blind. He can see vaguely. And then at the end of the, uh, of the miracle, he can see clearly. So if you think of it like this, Mark is making a frame. Or if you like food illustrations like I do, Mark is kind of making a sandwich. One piece of bread is the healing of the mute man, deaf mute man. The other piece of bread is the healing of the blind man of Bethsaida. And in the middle of the sandwich, or in the middle of the frame, is a feeding miracle in a desolate place. Right? So, it's a very unlikely place. You've got some very unusual, unlikely people. And Mark is framing this picture for our benefit. And what he does is he gives us an echo. It's not a direct quotation, but it's an echo. So if I were to say, we will never surrender, you might hear a faint echo of a previous prime minister who was trying to galvanize a nation at war, who were facing the prospect of invasion. And Winston Churchill in the House of Commons in 1940, we shall never surrender. Or if I were to say, I have a dream. It's now 60 years plus one day since Martin Luther King addressed uh, almost a million people in the mall in Washington, D.C., telling them about his dream. So you see, sometimes when you hear a speaker, you can hear an echo of a previous speech. You can hear an echo of a previous you know, address that reminds you of that the, the speaker is doing something more, is referring back to something significant. And what we have here in verse 35... Well, no, it, well, so we, well, let's see the description first in verse 32. We're told that there was a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And then in verse 35, that's the problem. Verse 35 is the solution. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, you might think that just stands as a miracle, and it does. Uh, a miracle is impossible. Deaf speak people can't hear. Uh, and people with severe speech impediments cannot speak plainly. So it's a miracle, but it's more than a miracle. Because if you take now, you, you flip back for a moment to Isaiah chapter 35, and we see something remarkable. Because in Isaiah 35, we're, we're told that the eyes of the blind, verse 5, shall be opened. That's a miracle in Mark 8. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So you see what's happening here. Blind people are now seeing, deaf people are now hearing, and mute people are now speaking. And the word that Mark uses in Mark 7, 
7.32. And the word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah chapter 35 verse 6 is the same word. And you might say, well, it's not a big deal. And you might say it isn't a big deal, but it's the only time that word occurs in the New Testament. And it's the only time that word occurs in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And Mark, as I said from the very beginning, he has Isaiah in the back of his mind. And he knows what Isaiah says, and he knows the promises of Isaiah. And for those who are tuned in, they will get this reference. They will go back to Isaiah chapter 35 and they will say, not only is Jesus performing miracles, not only. Not only are the deaf hearing, not only are the mute speaking, not only are the blind seeing, but what Mark is saying is the whole picture is coming into play. The whole picture is becoming fulfilled in Jesus. And this picture is quite remarkable, isn't it? Because we have a picture of transformation. We have a picture of transformation of the topography uh, of the land. And we have a transformation of the people. And we have a place where the redeemed and the ransomed will walk. And, and different versions of the Bible describe this chapter in different ways. I think the NIV describes it as the joy of the redeemed. Now, to be redeemed, you need a redeemer. So this whole chapter points to what the redeemer has come to do. And what Mark is saying is that not only is Jesus miracle working, not only is Jesus doing the impossible, but he's doing more than that. He's not doing less than that. He's doing more than that because he's ushering in a kingdom. And he's ushering in a new world order. And he's ushering in a new and a transformed environment with new and transformed people. Now you might think, well, maybe this is just a, a, overreaching a bit. But think about the setting when, when you look back at Mark chapter 5, sorry, Mark chapter 7, we're, sorry about we're flicking back and forth a bit. So Mark 7, you have the healing of the, the deaf mute man. Mark chapter 8 then begins with a feast. But what are we told about the gathering? We're told that Jesus in verse 2 says, I have compassion on the crowd. Why? Because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. They're hungry. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint. So these are people who are so hungry they are in danger of, uh, of collapsing along the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So it's a very vivid picture, isn't it? It's a desolate place. There's no food. There's a lot of people. These people are hungry, hungry to the point of faintness, and they are weak and in danger of toppling over. Go back to Isaiah chapter 35. What's the picture here? We're told that there's a wilderness, verse 1, and it's a dry land. We're told it's a desert. We're then told that the inhabitants of this place are characterized in verse 3, weak hands, feeble knees, 
anxious hearts. We're told that in verse 5 that there are those who are blind and those who are deaf and those who are lame and those who are mute. What's more, there's a transformation that's going to take place that renders everything unrecognizable. Because the wilderness, dry land, desert, oh, watch out. It's going to blossom like the crocus. It'll blossom abundantly. We're going to see a transformation of the weak and the feeble and the anxious. These are going to become strong and fearless. We're going to see that the blind, verse 5, now see. We're going to see that the deaf now hear. The lame, they're going to be leaping. And the mute, they're now going to be singing. And the transformation continues. Water in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Burning sand becomes a pool. Thirsty ground becomes springs of water. You get the picture. So Mark is saying, here's the picture frame, or here's the sandwich. The deaf-mute man now hears, now speaks. Blind man of Bethsaida now sees. And this desolate place, what happens? This desolate place becomes a place of abundance. These feeble and weak, hungry people are going to be fed to overflowing. They're going to have so much food that they can't eat it all. So you see what Isaiah is promising? Mark is saying Jesus fulfills the promise. Jesus is providing joy and transformation. He is providing a place for a redeemed and ransomed people. So if you grasp this reference, now you can read Mark chapter 7, and you can read Mark chapter 8, and you might not get the Isaiah reference at all. And it's still miraculous, and it's still powerful, but if you get that hint, or that echo, echoing from the background, and you put two and two together, as I believe Mark definitely is, that unique descriptor, Nowhere else are we told of this condition of speech that Mark gives us in Mark 7. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we have this word repeated than in that same passage in Isaiah 35. And we see the the, the place of the feeble people and the desolate area. And we see the transformation taking place, which demonstrates how powerful... Not just how powerful the gospel is, which it is, but we see how all-encompassing the ministry of Jesus is. That he has come to transform everything. He's come to transform the topography, the geography. He's come to transform the circumstances and situations in which people find themselves. He's come to do what they cannot do for themselves. Blind people can't see. And they can't make themselves see. Deaf people can't hear, nor can they make themselves hear. Lame people cannot leap, nor make themselves leap. And mute people cannot sing for joy, nor make themselves sing for joy. Feeble people, anxious-hearted people, weak-handed people, they cannot make themselves strong because they are weak. But Jesus can, and Jesus does. And I think 
what I find personally, and maybe you find this as well, is that as we go through life, and maybe young people here, you've, you've got your whole life ahead of you, and I, wa- I wish you a long and a happy and a, and a healthy, hope-filled life. But those of us that are on the other side of middle age, I can't describe myself as middle-aged anymore because I don't think I'm going to live to 112. 56, most of my life is now behind me. And as we come to that second half of life, we realize that life is more complicated than we once thought. Life is more trying or troubling than we once realized. And passages like Isaiah 35 and connections like Mark chapter 7 and 8 become all the more precious. Because we are well aware, I am well aware, of what I can't do what I can't change, what I can't fix. And I need one who can. I need one who's not just slightly stronger than me and slightly wiser than me and slightly more able than me. No, no, no. I need someone who is completely different from me. I need one who is altogether wise because I am so often foolish. I need one who is altogether powerful because I am very much aware of my weakness. I need one who is altogether pure and perfect and right and good because I know that I am not pure and right and perfect and good. So what we have here is a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement to God's people, but a word of entry to those who are not yet God's people. So if you are one of God's followers, one of Jesus' people, take heart. Because he has not chosen you because of your strong hands. He's chosen you because you're weak. He's not chosen you because your knees are strong. He's chosen you because your knees are feeble. And he's not chosen you because you have a strong heart. He's chosen you because your heart is weak. And the the picture here of physical infirmities may be the case, but these physical infirmities are spiritual realities. We are naturally blind to spiritual things. We just can't see. We are naturally deaf to spiritual truth. We just can't hear. We are naturally lame. We just can't do things. And we are naturally mute. We simply cannot or will not praise God with joyful mouths. So this is a picture that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus and in the work of Jesus. So if you are a Christian here today, be encouraged. Be encouraged because God is taking you and me, ordinary, unusual people, and doing extraordinary work in us, for us, and is willing to use people like us in his service and in his kingdom. But I said that this can also be an entry point. Because what I find, and this is where I have a privilege of, of having a twofold ministry. This Sunday, I have a Sunday off from prison. I know I've had you know, good, good behavior. So when Malcolm McLean asked me for certain dates to preach, he gave me several dates, but almost every date coincided with my commitment to preach in prison. And if I'm preaching at Edinburgh Prison, as much as I would like to, I simply cannot be here in time for noon. But I am not preaching in prison today. But the one advantage I have when I preach in prison is I don't need to convince my audience there's a problem. They know there's a problem. They know something has gone wrong. 
Not one of them as a small child said, my desire is to end up at HMP Edinburgh 33 Stenhouse Road. That is not the desired residence of any of Edinburgh's population. But there they are. And there they know that something has gone wrong. I remember speaking to one of the, the to one of the, the, we now have, we have women as well as men uh, residents. And I said to one of the women, I said, so do you have a good, a good guy waiting for you on the outside? And people have good sense of humor. She looked at me, she said, do I look like I have a good guy waiting for me on the outside? And I said, well, I guess you don't. She said, no, if I did, I wouldn't be here. And you see, so there's a reality that life has not gone the way it was meant to go. And if you're not yet a Christian, let me remind you that there is a problem, but I think deep down you know there's a problem. You know that you're not the person you're meant to be. You know that you're not the person that you ought to be. And you know that you're not the person you want to be. And again, maybe if you're on the other side of middle age, you realize that more and more keenly. That your best days are in the past. That your strongest days are in the past. And that whatever wisdom you or I have is beginning to fade. But the entry point here is that Jesus has not come to make good people better. He's not come to make strong people stronger. I think it was Martin Luther who was commenting on the book of Galatians, and he put it so succinctly. He said, Jesus Christ did not come to, did not die to make the righteous righteous. He wouldn't need to do that. But it's also of no, no effect because there are no righteous people. Jesus Christ died for the unrighteous to make them righteous. Jesus died so that the sinner could be saved. So if today you are not yet following Jesus, read the narrative. Read Mark and recognize that Jesus came to come to heal and to help and to ransom and to redeem people who could not do it themselves. Uh, Isaiah uses that imagery or that language of ransom redemption. Ransom redemption is a payment price, and generally there are three images that are brought to mind. The first image is the image of a slave, someone who is literally owned by another. I was worshipping a couple of years ago down at All Souls, Langham Place in London, and All Souls supports two charities relevant to, to where they are in the city centre of London. Not surprising, charity number one is a homeless charity because there are many homeless people in the city centre of London. But the second charity that they support is a hidden problem because they said of all the boroughs of London and in all the cities of the UK, the most the area with the greatest level of trafficking of human beings is Westminster, London. The most people who are either literally enslaved for domestic service or for other services that I wouldn't want to mention just now, but that is the major problem, but it's not seen. So slavery is a problem that people are in situations that they cannot free themselves from. And people are in addictive patterns and habits that they cannot free themselves from. So Jesus has come to set people free. He's come to pay a price so that we can be part of that great group of the ransomed, of the redeemed. Because if you remember the language of Isaiah 35, we're told there's a highway it's a highway of holiness. And you say, well, preacher, you just lost me there. Because if there's a highway of holiness, that's where I cannot go. And you're right. That's where you cannot go and I cannot go. 
But if there's one who makes the unholy holy, one who makes the unrighteous righteous, one who makes the impure pure, then maybe we can. Maybe we are. Maybe we are able now to do the impossible because that's exactly what he has come to do. He pays a price. He sets the captive free. But not only does he set the captive free, he makes the unholy holy, the unrighteous righteous. So this highway, which previously would have been barred from us, is a place now that we are welcome to join. And I don't know about you, but I find this welcome or this encouragement to be very powerful. And at the very end of that, we're told that not only is there a highway, not only will the redeemed walk there, the ransom will walk there, there's no danger anymore. There's no ravenous beasts, no, no, no danger, no threat. But the end of Isaiah 35 is so precious. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Our lives are filled with sorrow and sighing. Our lives are filled with regrets or cares or concerns of one sort or another. But we're told that when you are on this highway, when we're told, we're told that when you are ransomed or redeemed, the prospect and promise that we have is one of joy that lasts forever and ever and ever. And we're told that there is a place and a time coming when sorrow and sighing will be a thing of the past, never to be remembered, never to be repeated. And I think what Mark is saying is if, you're, if you grasp the ministry of Jesus, not only does he heal the sick, not only does he raise the dead, not only does he have authority over nature, not only uh, does he have authority to teach, but he is ushering in this new kingdom, this new order of which we can be a part, of which we are a part if we are followers of Jesus. I want to close with two quotations of, you see, I'm, I'm a history person. So some of my best friends lived hundreds of years ago. One of my best friends was a man called Hudson Taylor. You see, Hudson Taylor had a vision of bringing the gospel to 350 million Chinese people. There's well over a billion Chinese people now. At the time Hudson Taylor had this vision, there were very few Chinese believers. Today, there's maybe 100 million Chinese believers. It's impossible to count, but any effort to count is often inadequate because the number of people from East Asia, from a Chinese background, coming to faith is incalculable. But Hudson Taylor put it this way. He said, God is not looking for men or women of great faith. He is looking for common people to trust his great faithfulness. There's that word again, common. Common, ordinary unusual people but we trust his great faithfulness another friend of the uh, of Hudson Taylor a friend of mine as well D.L. Moody if you know anything about D.L. Moody he wanted to make his fortune selling shoes then something remarkable happened he became a Christian and instead of making his fortune selling shoes he ended up spending the next 50 years preaching the gospel he had very little education 
no formal training, but by the end of his life in 1899, this man who had a fourth grade education, and if there are any 10-year-olds in the congregation, imagine at 10 you leave school never to return to school. So this man with a 10-year-old education ended up preaching the gospel in person to 100 million people. Not bad. Hudson Taylor set in motion the work of evangelism. We now have 100 million Chinese Christians. D.L. Moody, 100 million people preached to in person. But listen to what Moody says. God doesn't expect the impossible from us. Isn't that a great relief? God doesn't expect the impossible from us. He wants us to expect the impossible from Him. If we grasp Isaiah 35... If we grasp the reference of Isaiah 35 and Mark 7, we are reminded that Jesus Christ does, did, and will do the impossible. So whatever your impossibilities are, you're praying for a family member who has absolutely no interest in the gospel. Well, that's impossible, isn't it? You can't change that person, but I know someone who can. You're praying about an impossible situation within your family, within your community, you know, within your circle of friends, and it's beyond your capacity, and it's absolutely impossible. God does not expect the impossible from us. He wants us to expect the impossible from Him. Jesus Christ does the impossible. 2,000 years ago, He did the impossible. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If that is true, and it is, can we trust Him today to continue to do the impossible in us, to do the impossible through us, and to demonstrate yet again that we have a great Savior of ordinary, common, unusual people like us, and that he can use ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things, not because of us, but because of him. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I pray, I hope that we all add our amen, because I'm going to ask that God would do the impossible, that he might change the hearts of people here, that he might change the hearts of those that are very much on our hearts and minds now, and that he might do so for our good, but to demonstrate above all his goodness and his grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each one gathered here today, and I thank you that though we are common, ordinary, and unusual, we are each one of us precious, infinitely valuable in your sight. And help us to recognize who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And if there be any here who are not yet believers in Jesus, that they might have the faith to trust him to do the impossible, to change their heart, to change their mind, to change their life. They cannot, we cannot, but we know someone who can. He does all things well, and he continues to do all things well. We bring before you the impossibilities in our own lives. We bring before you the impossible situations, the impossible people. We bring before you those whose hearts and whose minds are darkened. We bring before you those who are hostile and implacable against the gospel. And we bring before you those who have absolutely no clue. They have never been invited, never been explained. They have no idea who Jesus is. Lord, might you open their eyes that they would see. Might you open their ears that they might hear. Year, might you open their, their hearts that they might respond and enable their mute tongue now to sing for joy. 
Lord, we do not do this because of who we are. We do not ask this because of what we have done, but we ask these things because of who you are and because of what you have done. So give us faith, give us hope, give us love, and help us to have an extraordinary confidence in the extraordinary power of our extraordinary Savior through his extraordinary gospel. And we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to sing now Psalm 126. This again is a psalm of redemption, a psalm of ransom, a psalm of transformation. Psalm 126 from the first half of our psalm book. When Zion's fortunes God restored, it was a dream come true. Let's sing. benediction comes from the end of 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls